I'm Dr. Amalia Ganyus Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Women in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today is High Commissioner Jean Jiray Kamau, who joined the Kenya High Commission to South Africa in February 2015. Ambassador Kamau has worked across both the private and public sector. Some of her previous roles include serving as the Deputy Chief of Mission in Kenya to Washington, D.C., being the first Executive Director of both the Federation of Women Lawyers in Kenya between 1992 to 2000 and the National Public Complaint Standing Committee between 2007 to 2008. She has consulted on the security sector reforms in the Ministry of Internal Security and Provisional Administration and worked for several international agencies. On the academic side, she holds two master's degrees, one in law from Aberdeen University in Scotland and the second in democratic studies from Leeds University from the United Kingdom. Welcome to the show, High Commissioner. Thank you so much, Dr. Malka. High Commissioner, You are the High Commissioner of Kenya to the Republic of South Africa, Lesotho and Swaziland. Can you share with us some of the work that you do as well as responsibilities that come with holding this position? Well, being uh, a diplomat representing uh, the Republic of Kenya means that my first overall responsibility is building bilateral relations between the three countries um, that I'm accredited to. Uh, and by building uh, bilateral relations means that seeing to it that the relationships between Kenya and South Africa and between Kenya, Lesotho, Kenya and Swaziland are at an optimum level that we have common understanding on issues that are important to our two countries. There's a good promotion of uh, trade um, issues between our, our two countries, that the people-to-people um, relationships uh, between our two nations um are you know at at uh, at a good level that um, there's an exchange through cu- of culture, education, um, and just prosperity and um, and, ac- and good business activity going on. So it's um, it's a very involving role. Um, you have to not you know manage resources, manage people, deliver on strategic plans that uh, are developed by our Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kenya, um, and see to it that the goals of our national interest are. Um, attained and achieved through the bilateral relations. So it's a lot of um, meetings, negotiations, holding events. Um, you know, for example, um, since I've been here for the last uh, three years, we've had several important uh, trade events going on between Kenya and South Africa, which we've organized um, here and very well received and attended by private sector, for example, and the public sector from South Africa. And similar initiatives go on in, in the other two countries I serve. Um, so you know it's 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 engaging. It's a it's a very fulfilling job. I would say that uh, representing um, one's country is really a, an honourable um, position and something that um, I'm very pre- very pleased and honoured to be doing um, for my country. Um, so you know just to emphasise that it's really about building bilateral relations um, and that's making sure that Kenya's own national interests. Um, find a way within our relationships with South Africa. Yeah. What would you say have been some of the most significant trade initiatives? Um, I think one of the most important things is to build an understanding. What is it that um, 
is possible for Kenya to trade with in, in South Africa? And similarly for South Africa, what is the trade opportunity in Kenya? Um, and the business trade investment forums that we've had have been about creating a better understanding of what is possible, what is available, what's the regulatory framework, what's the trade policy between the two countries so that you create an enabling environment for business to thrive. Currently, the trade imbalance between, there's a trade imbalance between Kenya and South Africa, heavily on South African uh, advantage. And that's understandable because South Africa is a more um, advanced economy in terms of production. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's industrialized. Um, and it's had a much um, strong, you know, its, it's size of economy is also bigger. Mm. So there's a lot to learn um, from the South African economy that we need in Kenya to also build and grow our economy. Um, so the, the, you know, trade remains a really a cornerstone of our bilateral work because um, South African ex- imports into Kenya are quite um, on, the, on the higher side than our own imports into South Africa, um, and we, we want to find a um, a level playing ground where there's a better trade balance between the two countries and there's more trade um, technology transfer and better cooperation around trade issues that will then boost trade between our two countries. On that point of trade technology, mm. we know that Kenya is renowned for its innovations in the tech space. We looked at how Impesa, for instance, took the world by storm. Is there any work that is happening in that environment from technology point of view of being able to import some of those values and opportunities into the South African context or elsewhere? Yeah, I think there's always room for um, technology transfer between Kenya and South Africa. Um, I think there's been a lot of interest in how M-Pesa has completely revolutionized the way we we transact in the financial services. Um, and it's interesting to know that some South African banks that do business in Kenya are also benefiting from the M-Pesa platform. For example, um, Standard Bank, um, Stand Big Bank, um, which are, you know, they do retail mark, uh, banking in Kenya. And so their own experience on how M-Pesa has pushes um, financial inclusivity, that more people are able to have access to financial services would hope that that expertise and that technology then gets transferred into their own banking network, not just in South Africa, but in the southern region, because these are dominant um, brands in the banking sector. So I think that's one way where, you know, we can see there's a, there's a real opportunity that they can be learning um, through one aspect of, 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 um, of business. It's a great cross-pollination, and I think that when you've got opportunities to give rather than starting from ground zero, it makes more sense. In your role, what would you say have been some of the greatest challenges? Um, You know, within diplomacy, there are always challenges. Things change um, all the time. Um, You know, you could wake up today and find, for example, one of your country's products has been banned from entering the market and you have to work around those issues why the ban and negotiate to have the ban lifted so that the commodity can come so there can be pressure from home can you resolve this issue as quickly as possible uh, the host country where you're, you're, you're posted has its own national interests to defend and to protect um, so those are just some that's just an example that w- within diplomacy you're always challenged to safeguard your national interest, to look out for um, the interests of your country and, and to 
in, and to position that um, in, in, a, in a diplomatic way. And, and how to do that needs, you know, negotiating, talking, deliberating, and sometimes working under immense pressure. Um, but it's a very exciting area to work in because, you know, you have to have very good people skills. You have to be out there, um, be known, be articulate, be knowledgeable about what you're saying, be very clear on what your arguments are and why they're important and to persuade people that you have a reasonable um, case in point and you have a, a position that's important for and to push not just for you know, a win-win kind of scenario where everybody feels at the end of the day they've benefited. You know, So those are some of the challenges. You find yourself within diplomacy sometimes working in very um, demanding um, spaces that require you to really think, you know, you really have to bring out the best in yourself um, and look back and look into yourself for how are you going to get the best optimum solution in difficult situations. Sometimes, and even sometimes it can be a simple consular issue, you know, to do with whether somebody can come in or out of the country. Um, and you can get a call at very strange times of the day. I'm sure. But, you know, this is what comes. But on the other hand, they're also very exciting um, times when you go beyond the challenge and celebrate a milestone. And I think for us having a state visit by um, President Zuma come to Kenya, which was the first ever by um, a South African president, was again a very significant milestone for for the bilateral relationships between Kenya and South Africa. Certainly something to be proud of yes. and to add to your acclaimed list of records and achievements. Yeah. Now, our program, Womanity, Women and Unity, is all about gender equality. And obviously, during the conversation, we will highlight some of those Im important issues. One of the things that I'd like to ask you, and given your legal framework, is what are your perspectives regarding women empowerment and gender equality legislation? Um, Amelia, this is the same. The area around women's empowerment, women's rights, is something I've been... Um, working on throughout my career and I think living um, as a young woman um, in university and then starting work my first job was working in a women's rights um, organization and that calling you know working in that space was really as a response to the level of uh, discrimination that Kenyan women experienced in the early in the early 90s we were second-class citizens for all purposes intent we could not um, give um, transfer citizenship to our children uh, because it was if you if you were married for example to a foreigner um, your children automatically took the identity of their father not yours so they were totally denied the rights yeah. of, if of the mother yeah. as a if you were married especially if you're married to a foreigner it was automatic that you they couldn't claim citizenship um, so we came from a, a very um, difficult environment um, and you know, learning that living and working in a country which called itself and labelled itself a democracy, yet women didn't have any equal status. They were denied equal citizenship. They were denied, you know, just a basic um, right to claim entitlement to the citizenship was, was a key rallying point for a lot of the activism that took place in the 90s. And leading up to the promulgation of a new constitution in 2010 that was finally resolved but it took a long time it took many years of um, of ad, you know of activism and to put the the issue across the table and we're not there yet you know now we have equal citizenship but even access to political power still remains 
um, heavily contested. Um, we've just had an election where only 23 women were elected to parliament. And what is the uh, We have 290 members of parliament. So not even 10%. Yeah. Okay, 47 women are nominated. Um, we have special seats for mm-hmm. women. So 47 women are elected on special seats. So you've got 47. But the women who contest outside the 47 seats is still a very, you know, 23 out of, if you remove the 47, it's still a significant, it's very low. Um, and um, in the previous parliament, only 16 got elected. So now we're at 23. And it's, it's a marginal increase in women, having women elected to parliament. And, you know, a lot of the problems against them from how well you're treated within your political party, whether you the nomination rules support women getting through um equally, you know, with the male candidates, where the political parties have a strong support for women candidates. So the journey for women to get equal equal treatment, equal access, um, and to really be equal citizens within the countries is an ongoing journey, and it's a, it's a struggle. Um, and I strongly believe that um, democracies have to live to the tag of equality by demonstrating that truly women are equal citizenships, they have equal... Um, access to political power, they're treated um, with dignity and and you know and not discriminated against. I think that's really um, important, and that's been my life journey and my life commitment. That this is an issue that's very dear to me, and I continue to um, you know just to keep myself abreast of what's happened. And I just notice you know that it's very slow progress. We're getting there, but it could be better. You know, the the, the political environment, and not just Kenya, in different countries, needs to get to continuously be monitored and improve. That is certainly food for thought. And what I've encountered in these in the various interviews that we've had and the conversations mm-hmm. is that once you get to a certain point, you actually you have to keep going. You can't become almost complacent and say we're we're here now you've got to keep pushing to drive the agenda otherwise it it dissipates what would you say have been some of the challenges that you've experienced gender wise during your career Um, you know some career progression in whether in the public or the private space for women it just continues to be very contested um, you're never, as you said, you're, it's never, it, the work never finishes. You know, you're always constantly looking and assessing how, you know, any space you're in, are you treated equally? Is the opportunity the same for you as your male counterparts? How is promotion um, move, you know, is it, is, are the rules um, and procedures applied equally to you and your counterparts? Um, when you go for interviews, the kind of questions you're asked, um, and these are just the realities, and and it never, and it's interesting. Even sometimes when you have um, a woman who is your who is your boss, you still go through the same kind of um, interrogations. And I think because she's gone through those interrogations yeah. herself, so it's like a normalized, the wrong norm is being yeah, normalized. It's conti- so it's and, and and I think the lesson here is you can't um, you, ha- you always have to be on your guard. You have to be. Um, consistent in also the message that you send out on what your own principles are in terms of women's leadership and to always challenge um, you know any effort to undermine women's capabilities mm. because it's always there it's you know it's it's if you go for uh, the higher you go up in any organization 
you're going to meet certain barriers. Um, you know, patriarchy, you know, it, it manifests itself in so many different ways because that's been the dominant um, way of doing things in both the public and the private. But that said, um, you know, we've seen some changes. You find that I think affirmative action has really significantly opened up spaces for women. And part of the activism we had in our own country and I think even globally was that affirmative action was a principle that needed to be enshrined because it would help women to accelerate the movement of women into public spaces and leadership opportunities. So we've seen that the benefit which is reflected in legislation, we get more women in and that helps to um, bring some balance and bring some perspectives. Um, Not always positive. I mean, we've had scenarios where uh, women have occupied spaces that create, created by affirmative action and actually done nothing for the women's movement. Well, on the other hand, you've had women who have entered those spaces and really stretched the opportunity so that others could come in or created new understanding of what it means to have women enter into leadership spaces. So, um, you know, that so that's something, again, that is, is important to, to highlight. And within the affirmative action initiatives in Kenya, are those instituting quotas within organizations? What are some of the dynamics there? Yeah, well, we have a rule that, um, like for example, in our parliament, there should not be um, you know, the two-thirds rule in terms of representation. It's not yet fully um, realized within the, par- the national assembly. So almost saying 30% yes. towards women? Towards any g- either. either gender, yeah. Okay. So, um, and in some, uh, in government boards, um, again, the two-thirds rule applies. Um, in the public se- sector, I know there was, there was a call for at least 50%. So there are all th- these public uh, policies that are in place to promote that accessibility of leadership. So in terms of, of legislation, things like affirmative action, do you think that legislation can help reduce some of the gender gaps, whether it is in pay? Because globally, women are on average earning 23% less than their male counterparts or promotion like you mentioned career progression and then position whether that is in leadership in government or in other sectors of society I think it does I think legislation is important as a tool of entering the public policy dimension and saying you know this is this is now public policy by law that we will have to have X amount of women um, access this kind of um, leadership role. Um, it, you know, look at the whole issue around women's and paid labor, which is very contentious. But, you know, we're so proud to say, well, you know, 80% of the labor in the agricultural sector is contributed by women. But are those women paid? Paid? Do they have ownership of the of land, the land yeah. that they're so working? Working backward. You can see it's, it's a very good statistic to say that women do provide, but it's free labor. It's not... It's not quantified in, even within our own economic um, frameworks, um, and maybe and that's a that's a place where legislation hasn't um, hasn't kept up with a lot of these areas of discrimination. I think, it, um, and and the whole campaign around recognizing women's and paid labor as contributing to the overall GDP is very I think is a first step. Uh, because it then acknowledges that it's not free labor, it's household labor in small-scale farms or otherwise, but it has a significant contribution to the overall GDP of a country. And how about recognizing women and giving a, a number or some legislative recognition 
of what that contribution really means in terms of um, acknowledging that as a labor and also how then do we give back um, you know use it as a way of giving back and, and I think the, it's I, I don't have you know it's an area of research it's an area of concern it's an area of discussion but that's just an example that if we did have good legislation in that area we, we could save you know we could really recognize women's role and I think beyond the legislation piece there's also implementing legislation because legislation can be fantastic okay. in black and white but there's another point in terms of taking it to market and having people action it yeah. another area within the equality space particularly what I find more so from an African context and you already touched on patriarchy which in Kenya and South Africa and many of the other countries that are on our continent is a, a real concern but gender equality touches on sensitive points of culture, religion, tradition. Mm. How do you think, or do you think, it would be possible to overcome these points for the sake of women's development? Um, the, you know, the whole issue around culture, tradition, um, and also religion, it's, it's very contentious because it touches on the personal, um, you know, women's personal lives. And, and I think one of the stands we had as young activists was that if it discriminates against women, it's no good for women. It's a, that's the bottom line. If it's a religious rule um, that de- demands women's subordination it's and exclusion... It's almost used to justify what people yeah, do, then it's not wrong. good for women. So every cu- all these, you know, culture, religion, it has to be measured against the scale of, is it good, does it promote women's rights? No, yes. If it, and, and we have to use that. Uh, okay, we also have to be sensitive about the, the role of you know the three areas: culture, religion, tradition in everyday life. But again, they cannot be used as an excuse to subordinate and keep women in in a situation where they they live as second-class citizens. I think that's really the issue here, um, and that's the it, it, if it's no good for women. Then really, we have to test that and see whether it's promoting or not. And I also think it's as much about educating and promoting amongst women so that they know what their rights are, they know what their opportunities are, but at the same time also educating our men folk that this is the way that women should be perceived and mm. they need to have access to these opportunities. Yeah, and that it, it requires a national policy around that because you need a strong public education component that does exactly that, that educates the whole community about why women's rights are so important and why every woman, you know, safeguarding women's rights ensures that communities live with dignity because everybody's in promoting the idea of equality um, and supporting why women should be supported. It's everybody's responsibility, not just women. So, you know, I agree on that and that it has to come out of a strong public commitment and a public education. And we need to see more of that going on because women shouldn't be left to burden the shoulder of women's empowerment on their own. Um, there has to be a responsibility in everybody. Very important points. Today we're talking to the High Commissioner of Kenya to South Africa, Lesotho and Swaziland, Ms. Jean Jure Kamau. Hi, my name is Yvonne Chakachaka and I'm UNICEF and Rollback Malaria Goodwill Ambassador. 
You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in the struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, a program against social ills such as racism, socio-economic class division and gender-based violence. Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amalia Balka every week on this day at this time. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to the High Commissioner of Kenya to South Africa, Lesotho and Swaziland, Jean Jure Kamau. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. In the previous segment of the conversation, the High Commissioner spoke about her work as a High Commissioner and the responsibilities that this entails, formulating bilateral relations between the three different countries that she's responsible, looking at issues of trade, people, culture and education. We also spoke at length about the rights that women have earned in Kenya. And one of the lines that the High Commissioner mentioned, which I'd like to repeat, is that democracy needs to live up to the tag of equality. A High Commissioner, continuing with the, the gender topic that we were on in the previous segments of the show, building female leadership capacity is important for the future of women and to our countries as well as continents. Malawi and Liberia represent two countries in Africa in recent history to have had a female president. How do you see female leadership in Africa? Um, I think there's been a gradual um, improvement in women's leadership um, over the last probably, what, 10, 20 years, I think. We could, we've seen more confidence in women seek, to seek political leadership. Um, and there's more acceptance that women can um, aspire and lead um, and get support to, to to become heads of states, and I think you know the the example you've given of Liberia and Malawi um, confirm that. And if you look across the board, there have also been more women candidates presenting themselves for presidential elections, which is a good development. You know, I think in Angola, um, also in Kenya, we've we've had women present themselves as candidates in different elections in in Rwanda recently. So that's a good development. It just shows that women are, um, are ready to take up that challenge, and that's good. Um, what we're also seeing again is even at the level, not just the president, it can come up at the level of the vice president as well, ministers. So there's been an upward uh, um, development in that in that area. And although we've had only two, um, probably in the next decade we're going to have more uh, women taking up um, heads of state level. It would be good to see it. And apart from women being ready yeah. personally, it's also that the public is ready to receive them. Absolutely. And, you know, we just had um, a woman lead the African Union Commission. And we know we could end up having a woman president here. Yeah, we could know. indeed. So there are all these opportunities um, which speak to the, I think that's a really progressive development for our continent and for the individual countries that have come mm-hmm. through with this kind of leadership. Very impressive. And turning now more towards a, a personal perspective, I noticed that you earned two mm-hmm. master's degrees, one in law from Aberdeen University and the second in democratic studies from Leeds University. Higher education and training play a vital role in the economy of every country to build up skilled individuals who 
go on and make meaningful contributions to society. One challenge, though, is that the world is developing more rapidly than we've got time to revise and update mm. our education curricula. How do you think we can develop our capabilities for the future to overcome this type of gap? Uh, well, first of all, I think the whole issue around just um, access to education, it's t we still need to improve access to education generally. I think let's just even start with that because... Um, and technology allows us to improve the access to education. You know, it's it's it, the, the the choice of whether we're going to um, what kind of how we're going to use the the access to technology that's available now to ensure that there's more inclusivity and access for everybody who needs to have the basic education. And to do that again by legislation, I think it's really fundamental that. Um, basic education, high school, are accessible through public funding. That it's free and accessible. I think that w that's one way of, and we've 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 just come through that kind of policy change in Kenya. And quality too. And then the quality. So once you've got everybody in the room, or through some mechanism of learning, then the quality must be there to ensure that they all graduate, have access to the same quality education, and they all graduate knowing that they all had the same. Um, type of um, access to the, the, the curriculum and the and the tools of learning. Um, that's you know that's another big area of of concern. Um, but I think just overcoming the challenges that you know you just highlighted that you know technology technology is really um, something that is going to, to help our continent move forward in a very progressive way. And we we don't have to go through a long trend of development. We can just shift our thinking, shift our policy frameworks, embrace um, what technology makes available to us and the opportunity and and ensure that future generations are able to um, leap forward on a much stronger platform so that you know the continent can develop. So I think the learning and the reflection on previous efforts needs to always happen so that we see where we're coming from and what opportunities are there for the future. And to continue advancing. Exactly. One of the questions that I ask all my guests on this program who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of expertise is about the factors that have contributed to their success. Some people speak about hard work, others talk about perseverance or particular people who have made a, a big impression and impact on their lives. What, in your opinion, have been some of the key drivers to your success? Um... Okay, I couldn't discount hard work, <laughs> but I think networking is absolutely, it's invaluable in terms of helping you to learn, to continuously grow your knowledge base, um, and through networking to appreciate others' experience and what useful lessons you can draw from them. I've, in my career, I've met so many people uh, because I've traveled quite a bit, and it's always good to reflect about somebody you met and what you know what you learned about that person's own life journey and where you the two of you connected whether it was a workshop it was a meeting it was it could be you know whatever opportunity brought the two of you together and what the two of you at that point your lives had been through and that those networks then in future become valuable to share with other people um, so I think networking is is invaluable and something that we always have to... And you can't change the world alone. 
you need you need a group you need people to do that and having a strong network helps you have access to you know resources and learnings again and knowledge that takes you to another level and i think just always uh challenging oneself not to be easily satisfied um and leap for, and, and aspire for more and and better things and and not to be afraid of a new challenge and not to stay in i think one of the best things i think in my life is don't stay in one job for too mm. long keep moving because if you stay in one place you get too comfortable and you're not going to challenge yourself i think there's an expression which says something like the rolling stone gathers no moss there you go that so that's something i've learned yeah. can you share with us some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up um ooh there are many um i think maybe the ones which are significant would be transition points in my in my life um i think taking up new challenges has always been very important like changing changing careers moving from i think for me moving from the civil society to public space was 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 quite chat was something phenomenal because it's a different space different learning opportunity uh, probably milestones in women's legislation mm-hmm. i think finally seeing a constitutional um moment when we knew is that we had made a major leap as a country and also what that constitution meant for women was important because then you think wow you know it's taken 40 years plus to get to where we are and what does that mean for the rest of you know just i, I can think you know those are dates you don't forget or them or how you felt at that moment uh, and of course you know my son i have one child so who's again you know he's he's coming into my life and the moments seeing him grow have been awesome moments and he's been part and parcel of my career because i've always taken my child with me everywhere i think that's something as women we do we don't don't leave your we carry our life and our and mm. our ex- families with us um and and um, i think that there there are many moments but of course what's important is where you see a transition or a change not just in your own life but in your own community is being significant and who would you say have been some of the most important women in your life or key influences believe it or not my teachers um in high school and especially in high school were very key some very important women in the women's movement as well um one of whom is she's in swaz she's from swaziland called dr pat mcfadden was one of my early teachers in life in as a young as a young woman in my activist days uh grasha michel i've always felt very inspired by her um in the women's movement there are quite a number of women but those two come to mind also because they're from this region mm. and and maybe the listeners will also resonate with them uh, of course my mother um has been a really significant um role model for me um yeah and lastly mm-hmm. as we come to the end of the show can you please share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to young women mm-hmm. girls that are listening to us today oh great i think i'll just say a few things i've learned in my own life i think first of all 
you must have a good education. Um, when I was pursuing my own um, university education, I remember somebody saying, it's the one thing nobody can take away from you. Nobody can take away your degrees from you. But they can take you places. So, you know, a good education is a, is so important. Secondly, nobody can tell you what you can't do. You you decide what you can and can't do. Nobody should tell you you can't do something. If you want to become, I mean, run for political office, you want to head an organization, whatever you want to do, you can do it. You just have to set, have a plan. You just need your own personal plan. Um, you know, and you're well equipped with your education and you have a plan where you're going to take your career and you will get, that's exactly what you're going to achieve. And um, never give up and just keep the faith in yourself and in the community you come from. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to the High Commissioner of Kenya to South Africa, Lesotho and Swaziland, Jean Jure Kamau.